Thank you for checking out the HR Like a Boss podcast. If it resonates with you, please consider leaving a rating and review, and better yet, subscribe and share with a friend. I've embarked on a journey to get to know amazingly awesome HR and business professionals. These conversations create the foundation for my book on what it takes to do HR Like a Boss. On today's episode, I'm joined by Lisa Cotaspati. Lisa is the Chief People Officer at the Cleveland Museum of Art, which is a gem in Northeast Ohio. And I had the pleasure to meet Lisa while she was doing consulting during a stop in her career journey. And I thought she was an amazingly awesome HR professional and tons of fun. Uh, she's a graduate of Walsh University and got her master's from Case Western Reserve. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Nice to be here. So I see that you're actually in the, uh, the museum today. And I, I know am. it's been an interesting time these last a few months for sure. So maybe for those that don't know who you are and what your background is and why I think you're amazingly awesome at what you do, uh, tell, tell them a little bit about yourself other than what I shared in the uh, intro. Okay, well, thank you. I appreciate it. So, you know, I, I've been around uh, the corporate world for a very long time. So I've uh, spent about 30 or so, sounds so much, years um, working in big institutions like GE and KeyBank and a global technology company headquartered in the UK called Sage. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've been very fortunate to have really great experiences, both operationally as well as in human resources, employee engagement, uh, strategic planning kinds of roles. Um, and so um, I was looking at a certain point for something very different um, and got approached about the Cleveland Museum of Art. And I was like, whoa, I've, I've never even thought about working for an art museum. I mean, why would they need someone like me? And uh, then after I got here, I realized why they needed someone like me as a chief people officer. So um, it's, uh, I've been here almost two years. And I love it. I love being at the Museum of Art. If you've not been here, I hope that you'll come and visit when you feel comfortable doing it. Um, we just reopened to the public uh, in July and we really keep our fingers crossed that we could stay open to the public. Um, personally, I have two sons, 21 and 18 years old now, hard to believe. And uh, just recently moved to Cleveland Heights. And so we're really um, enjoying the area and exploring and finding our way around despite um, COVID restrictions. So that's a little bit about me. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing that. And I know we had talked before about a special place that the museum has in my heart uh, due to uh, my mom. My mom took her first art class at the museum, oh gosh, almost probably 65 years ago. And then mm -hmm. uh, and when she passed away last year, we had a memorial service and were able to get her art inside of that building, which I know she was smiling from, from upstairs. Oh. And my dad was so proud that day. Oh my gosh, it was such oh, a gosh, yeah. our family. So. so special. Yeah. So, all right, well, on, on, on to the uh, kind of meaning of, of today's time together and uh, I guess first and foremost, I'd like to start with a high-level strategy question uh, as it relates to what you think the purpose of human resources is. Yeah, the purpose of human resources. Um, wow. My first introduction to human resources compared to what I think the purpose of it is now, is like night and day. 
So, you know, at first, my first exposure to human resources was when I was a GE, very young. Um, and I was just like, oh, these, these are people that do paperwork and they, I guess, help me figure out medical benefits. I don't know. Um, so it was very, very, very administrative. Um, and I just figured they were, you know, kind of a secretarial kind of a thing um, in terms of you, you didn't see them, you didn't hear from them, you know, unless you had some paperwork to do. Fast forward, you know, 30 plus years. And from my perspective, um, and I'm sure I'm partial, I think it's, you know, the most important function of an organization. Um, you know, organizations don't run on their own. People are required to make the organization run. And so people produce stuff, people produce ideas, people, you know, make the money of the organization. People do everything. It can't do it on its own. A desk, a table can't produce, people produce. Um, and, and that scales to even uh, organizations that are very innovation related. People that are working on the COVID vaccine, the vaccine doesn't you know, work on itself by itself, people do it. Uh, their innovation, their brains, their talents make it come true. And so I think it is the most important function um, of an organization. And um, I look forward to the day that everybody thinks that way. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. The, kind of the mission for what the book is all about and trying to create that impact within uh, in aligning the purpose of the organization with the people so that we're all understanding which way we're heading and, and how, to, how, to, how to go about doing that in a, in a way that works for our clients, our, our colleagues, the community, et cetera. So as, as it relates to that, that impact and the most important function, the ability to get people to produce is what do you think the, what happened over that 30 year period of time from how you looked at HR back then to what it is today? Like how, how did that transformation happen at least in, in your, your eyes and may, maybe uh, culturally within organizations, at least some of them that you worked with? Uh, boy, that's, that's, a, that's a, not an easy question. I think that it really comes down to individual leaders um, in those organizations uh, for which I worked, who had a belief, had insight, had wisdom, whatever, that um, it wasn't just about money, because I worked in the corporate sector all my career other than here. So, you know, money is king or king in most organizations. Um, and so what gets emphasized? Revenue, sales, um, manufacturing production, speed of production. The, that's what gets emphasized. And again, back to the original question formerly, it's people that do that. Yes, robots can do some parts of it, but people develop the robot to do the thing, whatever the thing is. And so I think I worked for some very enlightened leaders who recognized that it was, it was the people that made that happen. And so, you know, and, and, and luckily I worked for GE. That's where I started my career. And at that time, Jack Welch was the CEO of GE. 
and he had the philosophy that, you know, it's kind of a six-eyed monster in terms of what runs the organization. And that's the CEO. Um, and seated to the right is the CFO and seated to the left is the head of human resources. And together, those six eyes, if you will, the six-eyed monster, when properly aligned, run the organization. Um, and there's lots of other people that are involved in running things, but at the end of the day, it's money and it's people. And that's what makes a run, an organization run or not run, is money and people. So I think that Jack Welch's philosophy, and I'm not some big Jack Welch follower, um, although there was a lot of brilliance that came out of that time in GE, um, I think that more enlightened leaders read about that and played with that and thought about that deeply and wanted that in their organizations. Um, and they probably had some misfires thinking, oh, well, this person could do that, but the six-eyed monster doesn't come together on the human resources side because you're a great administrator. Just like the six-eyed monster doesn't come to life on the finance side just because you're a great tax accountant. It comes together because you, you don't have any blinders on and you're thinking about running an entity rather than a function. Um, and you're strategic and um, know how to deliver. And so I do credit a lot of that to the philosophies of GE and I've been fortunate to benefit from those philosophies with really enlightened leaders. Really enlightened leaders. No, they didn't I, I, know I, I, what they were doing necessarily. And that's the key. They're like, I don't know exactly what that means, but I know I don't have it today. Can you do it? Well, hmm. of course I can. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so once you have it, then there's no turning back. But a lot of people, when they're hiring someone like with my skill set, they have no idea what they're getting. No idea. And those leaders had the foresight to see, like, this is how I think this should happen or run, right? How a business should function in the integration of HR. I don't know how to get there. Right. So I need to get really smart people that can help me migrate our way there. Because the way we do it today doesn't necessarily feel like the way that's most beneficial to the organization. That's right. I mean, I think it's probably why now, particularly in 2020, with a wild year we've had, chief people officers are one of the hottest jobs um, in the executive search world. Because people are like, man, I need somebody that can think really differently than just making sure payroll runs. Yeah, they're, they're in that in that vein, then there, are there particular things like challenges or or key aspects of thinking differently for that HR executive that would allow them to achieve the purpose of HR? You know, getting the people within the business to be as productive as possible and having financial wisdom enough to know that we can make money while we do it. Is there are there a few things that you say just man that just stands out to me of like that's going to get in the way of us having that success. And if you don't remove that barrier, then, then we're, we're, we're not gonna reach that land that we think HR is capable of or the organization is. 
Um, I want to make sure I understand the question, John. So pardon me. Are you talking about what are the barriers to success? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doing of achieving HR in the way that you talked about that that mm -hmm. that visionary enlightened leader that saw HR as this. That I see it as being that way, but we're kind of stuck here today, and I need to go. I want to go to that next place. What what were the things getting in their way of just doing it on their own and not being able to to do it? And what and what did you bring along to help them get to that spot? Hmm. Boy, oh boy, John. I didn't know you were going to ask hard questions. <laughs> But it was going to be just something social. Um, anyway, and I have, I have, I'm think I see people's faces in my minds as to why they got rid of one to bring in another. So that's what I'm envisioning right now. Um, I think they, the, the business leaders, whatever their business was, had a vision of the culture or the style of the organization or what the organization could produce. And their head of human resources, while lovely, lovely people, just could not pace with them. Um, they couldn't take that, that idea or that concept and turn it into something. So I know a lot of leaders are like, oh yeah, I wanna be a servant leader. Or, oh yeah, I wanna you know, do this, that, or the other. Okay, so what? Who doesn't? But you got to be able to drag it out of them and be able to turn it into a vision um, with stages of here. Okay, so if, if this is what we want, then we got to do a this, and then we got to do a that, and then we got to do a this, and then we got to do a that. And I think part of it is getting inside their head because they're they've a CEO, for example, has a million things on his or her mind. Um, and they need somebody that they can rely on as a partner to take this fuzzy concept about what culture can be, about what, what heights the organization can reach if it's high performing and turn it into something tangible. And I think those that I've seen who want to do that, but, but haven't been able to be successful is because they don't know how to do that. They don't know how to convert very ambiguous ideas into actionable plans. And is there one place you'd suggest they start to be able to make that impact? Like, is there like, gosh, put, put a plan together, um, evaluate our people. Like what, what are the like one most impactful, one, the most impactful way they could take one step forward in trying to connect HR to the business in that way? Well, I mean, I think, you know, you can always start at the beginning of the story with uh, recruiting. Nobody I know has a perfectly stacked team, both for now and in the future. Um, so, you know, fabulous talent continues to be a challenge for most organizations. And um, so I would start there. You know, most organizations will say, yeah, I've got a recruitment issue. Okay, well, what's the issue? And spending time with the leader to understand, because most I, I, I walk down the street and see a CEO, they're like, oh man, I got to have more talent. Oh, okay. What's the problem? What is the problem we're trying to solve? What have you tried? What's worked? What hasn't? Who are the types of people we're after? Where are they? 
why are they over there and not with us? You know, I mean, so it's really dissecting problems, um, asking lots of questions, knowing which questions to ask. Um, but, you know, I usually like to start at the beginning of the story versus in the middle of the book. And so I got to get talent before I can do anything with them. Yeah, you mentioned that actually reference it just then and, and before, like your ability to dig into the issue, right? And ask a bunch of questions and your ability to, to understand truly what's going on. Why do we think there's, there's a gap here kind of doing a discovery or an assessment or whatever term mm -hmm. you want to use to really understand, okay, you think about, you have a talent issue, like, and then I look at the reality of the organization and maybe that's true, but why do you think it's an issue? And right, ability, it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what they think. <laughs> I mean, together we'll figure it out. Um, but I think questions, you know, to your point, need to be really practical. And that's where having spent time as an operations leader on the commercial side of the business, it could be very, very helpful for people interested in human resources. Because, you know, if you, and this is with all due respect to wonderful professors at Case Western Reserve University, if you say, all right, John, I'm going to take an appreciative inquiry approach with you. Yeah, you already lost me. I'm done. Don't talk. Don't use those words. Uh, don't talk to me that way. I'm a business leader. What does that even mean? Now you got to explain it to me. I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm already done. So instead to be really practical, like what's the problem we're trying to solve? What have we tried? What's worked? What hasn't? Where do you think they are? How are we going to get them? You know, I mean, just who, what, where, how, when? Yeah, pretty simple. Yeah, not trying to overcomplicate it. No. And I think even that's more practical experience because sometimes I think people become more comfortable in their ability to ask questions with more experience that they have because they understand maybe where that person they're talking with is currently as opposed to maybe maybe in the past where they didn't have as much experience, hadn't worked with a CFO mm -hmm. to see him or her struggling with some of the financial parts of it that maybe they can lean on some of their experience that we really need to kind of go back 15 steps here as to, you know, I know you want to be, you know, already have this problem fixed. We got to really dig down as to what really is happening, why your opinions are the way they are, why the performance of the people is the way that it is. Mm -hmm. so there's a tremendous amount of maturity and experience and, and comfort in being able to ask somewhat simple, but poignant questions. Right. I mean, you need to know. And I, I mean, that is one thing I did learn it's a bit of a diversion here, but uh, when I, I taught at the uh, university level for a couple of years more recently, and um, I learned that curiosity and ability to ask questions is a skill that a lot of people don't have. Um, and so, I mean, I made it with my students that 25% of their grade was going to be on me evaluating how they ask questions. And that's something I did learn at GE. You'd get thrown out of a room if you didn't have a question ready for any speaker at any time. I love that. I have to admit, I recently presented to a uh, class at an entrepreneur um, course at, at a local college, and there were probably 12 students on, on the, uh, the call, and I only had mm -hmm. three of them ask a question. That drives me crazy. And um, <laughs> I, I ended up calling them out on it, which maybe that was or was not the right thing to do, but I felt compelled at the time, like, hey, if you ever go on an interview and somebody asks you, do you have any questions? 
and you say, no, I don't, don't expect <laughs> to get called back that you're going to get that job. Yeah, forget it. Forget it. So there's always something you can ask questions about. And I mean, at a certain point, you got to close it off, right? Because, you know, I mean, you sell things for a living and services, you know, at a certain point, you're working your way down the funnel to try and figure out how am I going to get whatever it is done? Just like, how am I going to sell whatever? So there's, there are questions with a purpose because I'm trying to get underneath and figure out like, how are we going to solve this thing, man? So I can move on to something more interesting. Do you think that ability to ask good questions starts with being a good listener? So like, I think almost every question that happens after the first or second one is usually a result of what the response was up until that point. Do you, do you think there's, there's something there in that regard? And I have this belief that we as a society have become terrible listeners. We're always trying to think of what else we're supposed to say or how we're supposed to be witty, or we're totally distracted by our phone or email or something else. Totally. Yeah, no, I think it's very uh, a very hard skill to listen. I think it takes so much intention. You know, as we're sitting here right now, you probably are experiencing what I'm experiencing. I've got staff members. It looks like, you know, Vegas or Broadway on my screen right now with flashing messages, flashing messages on the phone. And it's like, there's nothing more important to me right now than if something happened with one of my children than to focus on you and to listen to what it is that will be helpful to you and your listeners. Um, and so that I can respond in a way that hopefully gives a perspective worth listening to. Um, and, and I can't respond unless I really listen and understand what it is that you need. Yeah, one of the most, um, how do I say, the, the, the feedback that I've gotten about myself on occasion from my wife, team members, others, is that, are, are you present? Are you present with me now? Are you here with me? And that, that is like, you might as well take a hammer to my head and be like, hey, Bozo, like, what are you doing? Because I have a very, my attention span is very short, right? It really is. And it, me and too. it can get gravitated to that, that flashing red light. Like, why is that light flashing red? And right. instead of engaging in our conversation so that I, you can feel like I'm present and that we can get somewhere with this conversation as opposed to, well, you weren't even paying attention. So what, what are we doing here? Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a matter of respect. I think listening is a matter of respect. And if, if I just had it with my staff this morning, uh, we had a staff meeting and they started going off and talking about codes and payroll, blah, blah, whatever. And I basically said, you guys, I, I'm sorry, I'm tuned completely out. Okay. I, it, this is not, you, you don't need me for this. Okay. So you, we, we're going to talk about something you need me for, or I'm just going to go because I'm already going to start multitasking. Okay. So I'm just letting you know right up front. So at least I'm trying to let you know that I'm not going to listen to this. Yeah. Maybe I need to take that. Maybe take that piece of advice. You're not, you're not <laughs> engaging me enough to maintain this conversation because it's not as meaningful of what, what I'm getting paid to do, right? Which is, I'm assuming why you're, you're feeling that way. Like you're good at the payroll codes or whatever it is. You go run and do that. Please. Awesome. Yeah. I trust it's, you to do it. Yeah. That's why you're on the team. Right. I want my team to feel like they can do what 
whatever they are hired to do and paid to do and beyond. And I'm here as a bouncing, you know, somebody to bounce ideas off of or to wrestle problems to the ground or work side by side, coach, whatever. But payroll codes, I mean, I, I don't even know what my, I don't even know how to get in the payroll system. And that's okay. That's okay. Oh, you don't want me in there. Yeah, you'll you'll end up messing it up, Lisa. No. Oh, totally. <laughs> that's probably why they won't give it to you. So, all Never. right. So last last two questions. This one I'm going to take you back, probably right before you started your career at uh, GE. I think you'd mentioned uh, that being the place. If if you if you could give yourselves a piece of advice, you know, knowing what you know now, what would you tell your younger self back then? Well, it wouldn't be have more fun because I've always had fun. <laughs> Wouldn't be work harder because I've always worked hard. I, I think probably just um, I'd encourage myself to have even more confidence along the way than perhaps I did um, to limit self-doubt. And I've always been one to, you know, if there's a little window or a little door open, I'm going to jam it through, jam my arm or my foot through it. Um, but not to second guess myself, be confident in what's the worst that can get, that can happen, right? Like, as I've often said to people, and I, I think I would have given myself this advice, this is just one place to work. There's a million places to work. So if it doesn't work here, go try somebody else. It's not a big deal. So more confidence is mm -hmm. what I would have suggested for myself. And I'm a pretty darn confident person. And so through those years of experience, you, you, you gained more confidence and, and limited your self-doubt of maybe making a mistake or doing something that might jeopardize this job or my career. Yeah, I mean, still, I mean, last night I was uh, in, a, in an email exchange with a couple of employees and they were starting to irritate me. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, I probably was a little more biting in one of my responses than I could have been. Um, but I was like, okay, you are way out of your way out of line here. So I just, um, but then I, all night long, I was like, oh, I shouldn't have done it. Oh, I'm terrible. You know? So, I mean, you could quickly go back there and lose confidence over something so minor. So it's one of the things that I have to remind myself of all the time is, you know what you're doing. Yeah, no, surely you do. Well, I'll get you out of here on this. So the title of the book is HR Like a Boss. So I'm curious, Lisa, if you could describe someone that does HR Like a Boss, what would that be defined as? Um, boy, I think it's defined as somebody who views themselves as a leader first and an HR person second. Um, somebody that's not afraid to take control and lead the charge even sometimes when they have no idea what they're doing. Um, you know, I, I was leading the charge this year and still do of closing an art museum and then reopening it for the safety of visitors and the public and our people. I don't know anything about this place really compared to all the people here, but it's because I'm a leader first and an HR person second. So I'm not afraid to lead the charge and bring the people together to get done whatever needs to get done. It's not about me. It's about the team and us. So those are some things that I, I think make somebody a good boss is 
not trying to be the boss. Yeah, be a leader. Yeah, I love. I don't care about being the boss. I really don't care. Not home. I'm the boss. <laughs> My kids will tell you that. But you know, I mean, I, I gave that up a long time ago trying to be a control freak in the workplace. It just doesn't work. Yeah, that's awesome. No, I appreciate you sharing that. Well, you you made a couple really cool points throughout today's discussion, and I, I want to recap them quickly. So. Again, you reiterated HR's importance as being the, the number one function in an organization, the impact it can have throughout the entire company, and that people produce. People produce results, innovation, revenue streams, new products, et cetera, which I thought is, is you know, again, we, we assume um, that, but it's, it's sometimes we don't put that into place. And, and the importance of having a great team, so starting with recruiting and making sure you've got the right talent in the right seats, so to speak. And I also really appreciated the uh, digging in with questions, uh, your curiosity, which then I think, in my opinion, may have helped some of the confidence that you had over time to just truly understand the problems that your organization or colleagues were facing so you could dig into them and help them solve them, right? At the end of the day, let me ask a bunch of questions so I can help you figure out what's going on so we can move on to something else. Totally. Thank you for checking out the HR Like a Boss podcast. If it resonates with you, please consider leaving a rating and review and better yet, subscribe and share with a friend. Until next time, let's continue to aspire to do amazingly awesome HR.